Today's guest on Call Your Next Witness is Matt McCann. Matt is a friend of mine from many moons ago, from originally from Belrose, Queens, um, was then a year behind me at Regis High School, and he and I have some buddies in common and have known each other for a long time. And uh, we get into some uncharted topics for purposes of this podcast. First of all, we talk uh, a good amount about mid-90s hip-hop and battle rap, which is a a true passion for Matt. And I would venture to guess that this is probably one of the top five or top ten lawyer-themed battle rap podcasts that you're ever going to hear. Um, and we also get into just the vast array of different practice areas that Matt has gone into over the course of his career, whether it is uh, white-collar criminal defense to appellate practice to land use to um, to special education, which is both litigation-based and administrative. Uh, Matt has done a, a little bit of everything, and a lot of these areas are not fields that he anticipated being in years ago. And I think it's just a great listen for young attorneys uh, who are just starting out on their career um, because it just goes to show that sometimes your career will take you in places that you never really anticipated, but you you always end up somewhere for a reason. And uh, enjoy. I think Matt is going to be a great listen. Welcome to the Call Your Next Witness podcast. This is Brian Gibbons, and this is the Wade Clark Mulcahy produced uh, podcast where we touch on issues that delve into the legal world, insurance, criminal defense, and uh, just anything that might be of interest to to attorneys of varying levels of experience within and without the New York area, which is a perfect transition into our next witness. Our guest today is uh, a friend of mine from Queens, New York, uh, a fellow alum of Regis High School, Matt McCann. Matt, how are you doing, buddy? Doing great, Gibbons. Uh, thanks a lot for having me on. Absolutely. So um, Matt is a year behind me at Regis, just for everybody, uh, everybody listening, and uh, has had a vast array of different fields that he has delved into in both New York and then at, as of the last couple of years in Michigan, where Matt and his family have uprooted and moved to. And we are going to touch on a few of those things as as Matt's Matt's journey has changed over the years. But Matt, the first thing that you and I are going to talk about relates to uh, a mutual love of both of ours, and that is mid '90s hip hop. Oh, um, I thought you were going to say pickleball, but yeah, <laughs> Matt, I thought of you about six months ago because I was in my car and I had just pulled up to a convenience store and I had the music on loud and it was just a random shuffle of everything on my phone. And the song playing at the time was Cecilia by Paul Simon. Oh, great song. Great tune. And this little old lady was next to me and she looked at me getting out of the car and heard the music 
and she just was overcome with joy. Um, you could just see in her face she lit up. She was clearly a Paul Simon fan. I get back into my car and I start it and she's now coming out of the convenience store. And the next song that came on my shuffle was Shook Ones by Mob Deep. <laughs> and the abject horror that came across her face, it, it was uh, it was it was special. It was yeah. special. I although, think. I, yeah, she she was she was concerned. Yeah, she, she would be. But although notably. Uh, Mob Deep uh, and Paul Simon grew up probably about six or seven miles away from each other. You said it. Queens. Up Queens. Yep. Up Queens indeed. But yes, quite quite a quite a transition. <laughs> yeah. And the reason this now comes full circle is we had to reschedule this podcast because of Mets opening day. Of course. And Pete Alonzo used shook ones by mob deep as his walk-up music on opening oh. day yeah i i i couldn't believe you don't you know with even with mid-90s hip-hop not that mob deep is obscure but you don't expect to hear them on the you know on the the state like blaring at the stadium you right. know they're a, a little bit of a deep cut i guess yeah so to bring that even i don't know if you can have a fuller circle but um the the track in the movie eight mile over which b rabbit um wins the battle against um clarence Mm -hmm. um is the beat for shook ones oh and as we were discussing or i let you know previously and one of my big hobbies is in, in i'm involved First in the battle rap scene back in New York and New England, and then I've carried that in my new home in the Detroit metro area. So I'm going to be hosting or helping host a rap battle event one quarter of a mile north of Eight Mile. So we've got 7-Eleven, Cecilia, Mob Deep, Mets team that we rescheduled for, then the instrumental for the beat over the over the namesake of the road that I will be hosting the battle on tomorrow. So unbelievable that's not synchronicity. I don't know what is. Yeah. And and by the way, Matt, you were such a cliche, a an attorney who does appellate and special education work that also does battle rap. Do do something original for God's sake. Come yeah, on. I know. It's like <laughs> it's just, I'm just I'm just following the playbook. How did you get into battle rap? We've never had this discussion yeah. on or offline. How did this start? That's fair. So, um, you know, it, it all goes back to probably blaring hip hop in my Uncle John's uh, like 1983 Toyota hatchback Corolla, um, like driving to St. John's games. Um, in like the mid to late 80s but yeah i mean fast forward until uh college um i had always i had always written um raps but never performed them and i linked up with a fraternity brother who had pretty pretty nice uh production equipment and then actually started rapping uh with him recording and that kind of thing so that was up at cornell we did um 
nothing that ever got released in terms of beyond our fraternity parties or maybe some clubs in Ithaca, like which was the city that we went to school in, but uh, loved it. Then that would have ended around 2003. Then there was law school, first job. Fast forward 2010, we are sitting home on the couch one Friday night after our first son was born because that's you know what you do after you have kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like YouTube, Google. I mean, I, I think I YouTubed uh, like best white rapper or white battle rapper, and I. I went down a wormhole that night that has ended uh, 13 years later with me becoming a a fan of battle rap, then a participant in the some online battle rap tournaments and then a sponsor of some of those. And then those turned into a league that I developed with some friends that league then sort of became part of a bigger national league. Um, we were the, the New England division of this bigger uh, nationwide league. And when it was time to come out here, it had become such a part of my uh, enjoyment uh, and socialization that I was eager to get plugged in. And a good friend from out in California who I had met through Battle Rap linked me up with the guy that runs one of the really the best rap battle league in the metro Detroit area, if not the whole state of Michigan. And I went to a couple of events and then started helping them with promo and fast forward. Now I'm booking talent and uh, putting cards together and hosting. That is wild. And the, (laughs) you know, let me ask you this. Now, if you are, performing or competing or whatever the the terminology yeah, is battling 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 there you go yeah. if you're battling yeah i i my assumption with knowing nothing about this at all right is that you have some pre-prepared rhymes but then there's also like some thinking on your feet that happens at the time is that accurate yeah i mean so uh in the like what i'll call the modern era of battle rap which probably is 2007 to date it has transformed to a uh approximately 80 percent pre-prepared written rehearsed form but the best people still have the ability to freestyle i i've seen that if you can can work that in uh in an otherwise close battle you're probably going to win so there's still a lot of respect for in use of it um but it's not you know a really rap battle in its true like essence from the roots would have been like two guys squaring up on a street corner in the bronx in the late 70s and just flipping the rhymes off the top of their head and like that's where it goes back to you know and when you see people do that and i have it's yeah it's it's an amazing talent oh my god 100 percent. i mean that i have so much respect for it you can't because, teach that <laughs> no you can't you need to be you need to have a certain predisposition towards it and then there is an element of practice that can certainly make it better 
but I, I think there's, I don't know what part of the brain or what, what particular innate talents there are, but it's like, if you don't have those, you, you're never going to get far in that vein. But even the guys that, you know, and this is, like I said, 80 to 90% of the performance because it's known that it's done with preparation. It, they add elements of delivery and uh, almost become, and some of the best battles, it almost becomes akin to like delivering competing soliloquies. Yeah, I was gonna, it's or like closing arguments. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some of this, the high level guys, it's, it's, you know, very intellectual, very well crafted. Um, and I think that's the part that really appeals to me. No, it's, it's, I mean, uh... it's a creative exercise. Um, but it's stripped, it's very stripped down, it's very DIY. Like me and the two guys and a few other people that are involved in this league, you know, do everything from finding the people we want to battle each other to like throwing the garbage out at the end of the event. But that's <laughs> punk rock too. So, you know, I like that. Yeah. Um so we both grew up in New York and this is this is going to be a transition to another hip hop question, and I'm going to put you okay. on the spot with this. Okay. So every year, whether it was 104.3 or back in the day when we were kids, 102.7 when they still played rock music. Sure. Anytime there was a big holiday, they would play the top 500. They used to call it the Firecracker 500 on uh, 102.7. And it would be the top 500 songs in, in rock or classic rock history. One was always Stairway to Heaven. Sure. And two was usually Freebird. And then you would kind of go from there. I have never really heard on in any kind of commercial space a hip-hop list prepared along those lines in any kind of mainstream way. So you mean like um, top 500 songs of all time? Yes. And this is where I'm going to put you on the spot. Sure. If there were a Mount Rushmore of hip hop songs for all time. Right. What do you put on that list? Well, so the question that I anticipated you might ask is not this one, which would be Mount Rushmore of rappers, because that is easier. Mm-hmm. And well, it's easier for me, let's say. Um, so let's let's bring it back well, for just well, a well, quick well, point. Well, quick if you point had anti- if you had anticipated the other one, who's your who's your Mount no, Rushmore no, I'll, of I'll rappers? No, no, I want to answer your question though. But the one the part I forget is how many presidents are on Mount Rushmore? Oh, <laughs> just four. Just four. So Juicy okay. would have to be on there. Um, I think you got a, the message. Yeah. I, it's, I think the you, message you, has to go on there. If you're going to do one, there has to be one like legit old school one. Yep. Right. And you're probably flipping a coin between the message or Rapper's Delight. And I, yeah, but Rapper's yeah, and there's a whole reason why I would never pick Rapper's Delight that I could spend the whole episode on. But <laughs> So yeah, the message, juicy. Um, 
You see, it's tricky because it now do you hard. have to go? Do you have I to go west answer. coast now? You know. Oh, okay. You know what? You're right. You probably got to do nothing but a G thing. Yeah. Um, and then the and fourth. Um, see, and then how modern do you want to get? No, I know it's hard. It's tricky. You could you could make a case for something from Eric B and Rakim. Sure. You could you could go Tupac. You could go. Oh yeah. You know <laughs> something in the Wu Tang universe. There's a lot. Oh, you, you know do. what? Triumph. Good point. Huh. Triumph. The, 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 yeah, the, the, the first single off of uh, Wu-Tang Forever, Triumph, that would be the fourth. So if you're going Wu-Tang, Triumph is your go-to? I, I'm looking at four songs that better than any other four songs define hip-hop. Huh. So if you've got nothing but a G thing, Triumph, Juicy... And the message, I think, uh, I mean, that tells a story. You're you're covering. So hip hop turns fifty this summer. You're covering a core twenty year period at the heart of those fifty years. Fair. So I mean, but then so yeah, I'm gonna give you uh, apropos. Well, not apropos of nothing, but I'm gonna answer the question you didn't ask, which is. Number one, Jay-Z, number two, Biggie, number three, Nas, number four, Eminem, number five, Jadakiss. Jadakiss. Yeah, Jadakiss. A... You gotta Jadakiss has always been in my top ten, but he did one of the last um really legit what they called verses, which was a thing that was born out of the pandemic when people couldn't go to concerts. So they would have two rappers or two groups square off like in a so like a relatively secluded spot and they would play their best music and perform it as well but it got so popular that when things started to open up again then they started to do verses in big venues so they wow. actually did a d block oh, i'm trying to think was it Oh, it was the Locks versus Dipset versus in summer of 2021. And Kiss was better than he was 25 years ago. No kidding. Yeah. So that cemented him in my top five. Wow. And as you probably wouldn't be surprised, but I won't get into, I probably have people, I probably have like a solid ranking up to 50. I'm sure you do. I'm sure. And I would imagine that I've probably heard of about 25 or 30 of them. Yeah. yeah. And then you've got some deep cuts in there. Yeah, definitely. definitely. Fair enough. Um, well, we should probably talk about something law related now that, yeah, we, yeah. I mean, now that we've solved all the problems of hip hop. Uh, <laughs> or created them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Two white yeah, Irish whenever... guys trying to figure out hip hop. <laughs> yeah, let me explain to you people how hip hop works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good job. This uh, Twitter's gonna love this. So, all the one got... of my favorite battle rappers has this line. It's like, uh, I'll never forget that I'm a guest in the house, but um, I'd be damned if I didn't earn my spot on the couch. I like that one. That's pretty good. Yeah. That co covers his bases. Yeah. So 
you got your legal career started in New York. Yeah. And for a good number of years, you worked for uh, Alan Fuderfoss, who was a solo practitioner at the time, right? So, yeah, Alan Fuderfoss is um, he, he had. So he when he split from Jerry Shargell, may he rest in peace in the early 90s, Alan Resnick, uh, who was like their associate, went with him. So. I, when I joined the firm, I was the first person Alan had hired, I believe, in since the mid '90s. So, like in 20 or so years, and then I proceeded to work for him for the better part of seven years. Okay. And what I'm going to ask you about in terms of your practice areas, because I know you yeah. did a lot of, of white collar criminal defense yeah. for Alan and some other stuff, but since you worked for him, you have done a whole lot of different things in terms yeah. of just both in New York and now where you are in Michigan. Yeah. So when you left Alan's office after seven years, mm -hmm. first of all, like what was the bulk of your practice when you were with him? So the bulk of it revolved around securities and everything that could go right or wrong with so that includes, obviously, securities fraud, which puts you in the criminal sphere, um, administrative violations, which, which put you in front of the SEC or FINRA, or sometimes the SEC brings civil litigation in federal court. Then you've got state securities regulators, um, and then there were some instances because of the, the knowledge that we had in the field that defrauded investors would come to us in a plaintiff's capacity and we would represent them. So that was the core of it. But, you know, there were some cases where I you know the DOJ, SEC, FINRA, and the state regulator were all breathing down the necks of one of our, one of our clients. There were more cases where only one or two were. So this sounds like a pretty intense, you know, seven years in terms of, yeah. you know, a lot of, uh, put it this way, a lot of emergencies. Yes, <laughs> that's fair. It was, yeah, it was a lot of late nights for sure. A lot of weekends. And so you... I guess just by circumstance, and I'm going to throw the word expert around, you had to become kind of an expert in the world of securities. Yeah, I mean, I think we were all right. We're always very hesitant to use that word in the legal profession. Mm -hmm. um, but let's say uh, a practice area connoisseur. I don't, yeah. I don't know what the. You know, Something that's not expert is. Yeah, I knew a lot about it. And we also had the benefit of um, having a fantastic um, person who worked with us in a consulting capacity who, like, you would normally think of as being, like, in-house compliance. So she brought all of her knowledge of the FINRA regs and the SEC regs and all that stuff. So when we didn't know, she would educate us on the, that. Stuff we didn't know. Yeah. Okay. And the reason why I wanted to bring this up, 
is since you left Alan's office, you have worked in a variety of different fields and a variety of different variety of different locations. Sure. Now, to what extent did you feel pigeonholed in the world of securities? Meaning, this is what I've been doing. This is the only thing that I have a significant practice base in and experience in. Nobody's going to hire me to do anything else. Was that an, an issue for you when you were transitioning into your next stops? So, I mean, I think there's been a, a different stages that concern. So, for example, my first gig after my clerkship was at a firm that did almost entirely insurance coverage. And let's just say I knew I didn't want to do insurance coverage for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. well, that'll, that'll be the most neutral way to say it. Um, and and so, I, you know, I did a lot of research and networking and hustling and had a, a few different opportunities, but that took the opportunity with Alan. And then, of course, like you said, that that was uh, for seven years, very security centric. So when when I was looking for opportunities after that, I mean, I cast a pretty wide net. Um, there, there were some white collar firms that I looked at and had, you know, major long conversations with. There was a, there was a point in time where I was almost going to be bringing uh, the Allen's firm as a department to a mid-sized regional firm that didn't pan out, but, you know, learned a lot through that process of how to potentially merge and market. Um, the segue to what I did next, I think, helped. It was one of those things where the knowledge base that I had was helpful. Um, because I wound up doing employment law, hmm. but with a high or high amount or, or significant amount of clients in the financial space. So while I wasn't really a lot of times involved in the nitty gritty of the transactions, these were people I knew. I had just represented. Uh, <laughs> instead of in the context of like non-competes i had represented them in the context of like indictments ah. so, <laughs> yeah so that that transition kind of made sense but that firm didn't make sense for other reasons and then yeah i went to sort of a more general practice firm on long island where i did a whole bunch of stuff i did uh, land use and zoning Article 78 proceedings. I did some estate. I did some bankruptcy. I did some high level divorce stuff. Um, really, I did some criminal, uh, got back a little bit to my criminal roots and doing some smaller uh, misdemeanors and violations and stuff. Uh, a lot of uh, what would you call, I guess, municipal law for some, some built, some Tony villages in Nassau and Suffolk. I tell you that that really is general practice. That's a little bit of yeah. everything. Uh-huh. Exactly. Um, and then from there is when I made my transition 
which had wasn't permanent, but uh, I made the transition to special education law, which we can talk about. Yeah, and that's and you have personal reasons for getting into special education law. Why don't you get into that a little bit? Yeah, so I was at this firm on Long Island that I talked about doing general practice, and it was a nice landing place for me after having the firm before have a financial crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a lot of good things to say about that firm um, that I landed at, but uh, a good friend came to me. Uh, she was a friend that I had consulted when my wife and I were advocating for our son, Andrew, who has significant special needs. He's um, has severe autism and a rare form of uh, severe epilepsy. So when we were doing the when we were doing the uh, advocacy for him, um, I would call her just for advice, and she didn't charge. She was very, was, you know, she was a good friend before, but an opportunity came up at the firm that she was at, and the the original sort of link, other than, in addition to the fact that I had interest and some experience because of um, my son, was that they needed someone to do a lot of federal litigation. And I had done that in, you know, at that point then probably at least six substantive areas. Wow. Coverage, white collar, employment. Um, I'm sure there's other ones I'm forgetting. Um, so it's almost so a match I, made in heaven. Like you, right. they needed... They, they needed someone for this practice area, but they needed someone who had dealt with federal litigation and who at least had a passing knowledge of the federal rules, which right. is which is no small undertaking, by the way. Correct. Correct. And then what was interesting was, and I felt that it was a real blessing, is I sort of, that's how I got into it, but then I got the opportunity to transition from doing strictly the federal work to doing a lot of the boots on the ground administrative hearings. So basically I'm I'm trying to see how how neatly I can summarize this, but special education law almost always um, starts out in the arena of administrative law. uh, you have to exhaust certain administrative remedies, um, but then it also frequently finds its way into federal court in a number of contexts. See if I can kind of tick through those. One would be um, attorney's fees. So if the school district says, yeah, we will give this kid the services that they're entitled to that you've argued in favor of, or the administrative body has ordered them to do so, but then they're trying to stiff you on your fees. There's a cost uh, shifting provision under the IDEA, IDEA, which is an analog, I think, to probably um, ones that are in other similar civil rights statutes like Section 1983. Um, And so if if you sort of Getting the runaround on that, you bring a federal complaint. Um, if 
after you've exhausted the state administrative procedures and the state administrative body has told the district what they're supposed to do now, uh, but the district still refuses to do it, bring them to federal court because it's all, all, it all runs back to a basis in the federal IDEA, which is the um, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, which is the core of this whole area of law and practice. Um, and also, I guess another instance where you would be in federal court would be um, bringing a federal class action. Let's say there was a policy uh, in place that was discriminate, discriminatory and it was impacting all kids with autism in New York City schools, then you could bring a class action, um, which 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 an administrative agency wouldn't be even. Uh, I don't think even has the jurisdiction to entertain. Oh, so I kind of nerded out there, but that's that's the universe. But there's as administrative summarize it. Administrative remedies that have to be exhausted, and then at a certain point, maybe you're ripe for a federal suit exactly and okay. that's what it boils down to um and so when you transitioned into this place when when your skill set met their needs what yeah. give me a time frame like when is this 2019 2020 when when did this <laughs> so i start i started my job three or four weeks before uh the pandemic started. Okay. And I also, um, like, there was a, a Monday, I believe it was March 13th, 2020, where no one went, no one went back. Mm -hmm. All the schools were closed. That Friday, I had a dry cough. And I said to my wife, I think I have COVID. She's like, you're being dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I had COVID. I was in the first 10,000 cases. No kidding. York, which is, you know, a whole other episode. But in any event, so um, very quickly was uh, practicing special education out of the second bedroom in the attic of our wow. house. I was going to say, so for your purposes, you get COVID, but... Andrew has all these issues. Oh, like, yeah. Like it's it's not it's like right now it's 2023. Right. And COVID is largely a minor inconvenience at this point. Right. But this right. is back when first of all New York City was yeah. really in now. the throes of things. Yeah. And then your personal situation with COVID like you got to be real careful, no? Yeah, so I mean um it was a full 10 days. I did whatever, you know, I, I did the whole, whatever the CDC guidelines were at the time. I mean, I got it, first of all, I got it bad. So I didn't really have much of a choice but to stay in bed for a while. But then whatever the guidelines were for how long you were supposed to isolate and all that. Um, but the craziest part was, um, practicing special education law on behalf of these students in New York 
that were now homebound and special education students almost by definition can't be adequately educated remotely. Um, hmm. I could see that just, so in, you know, I'm fighting that battle with the New York City Department of Education on behalf of my clients while shifting off with my wife, doing exactly what wasn't working for Andrew. So like there would be occupational therapy at 1015. So I'd like break for a half an hour and do his OT virtually. And then I'd run back upstairs and work for another hour. And then while Melissa was teaching virtually from the basement and uh, it was uh, the, the real meat of that craziness was like March 2020 to July 2020. And I think after that, Andrew was able to go back in person. I yeah, I can't I can't imagine just I, I I know what what it was like in September of 2020 when I was home with three kids who were all yeah. working remote at the time and and a fourth one who was, you know, she's in uh was in maybe 5th grade so she could kind of do her own thing but with real young kids it's you're you're yeah. you're swimming upstream at best. Oh, and yeah. and that's, you know, three kids with standard needs. Right. So I can't I can't imagine. I honestly can't imagine how I like was, the amount the, the the prospect of maintaining attention. I, 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 I mean, know. it was, I, you know, it, it was it was basically an impossible thing. So you really were very much left to do the best you could. And one of the value, one of the many valuable lessons I learned from that time period was the mechanics of and the delivery of occupational therapy, physical therapy, and speech therapy, which are very frequently components of uh, a special, uh, adequate special education program for children with autism. And so I was able to take that and apply it in my representation of my clients, because when I was talking to their various specialists, I could converse competently in the language of their expertise. And that made me better at representing my clients and made me better at preparing those therapists to be witnesses in support of the services and why no New York City, it's not enough to offer one hour a week of speech therapy. It needs to be 10. Um, so there were certainly um, valuable offshoots of that just impossible four-month stretch. But <laughs> I, can, I can recognize the value of them now. At the time, I just, I feel like at the, during that time, there was just a point in the day where my wife and I looked at each other and like, I give up for today. Knowing full <laughs> well, like we hadn't accomplished like 25% of what we probably needed to. But well, that's that's adulthood in a nutshell, is yeah. having a bunch of things you want to accomplish and <laughs> accomplishing none of them and saying, There we go. <laughs> Day well spent. Yeah. So, 
so you get to this new firm. They need somebody with federal experience. Right. You're very interested in special education. It's a match made in heaven, and you and that firm live together happily ever after, right? Of course, of course. <laughs> except, except. So, like many married couples during the pandemic, my wife and I had a lot of time to think and talk uh, in a way that was a lot harder when I was, you know, getting home at midnight from Midtown Manhattan on a regular basis. And we started really balancing what we were getting out of living in New York for the amount of money we were spending for it. And um, we had sort of, my wife is from here where I am now in Michigan. And we had really ruled it out because, um, well, you know, Andrew went to a fantastic school here back in Nassau. He was seen by what are considered some of the top, and one of the guys may be really the number one epilepsy doctor in the country. He certainly is the trailblazer on uh, medical marijuana um, as a now FDA approved treatment for epilepsy. And we were scared to leave those things behind. Add to that that I've you know, spent my whole life there. My uncles, aunts, cousins, mom, sister, friends I grew up with, Frank Olton, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well played. Um, but, you know, it was all there. But, you know, you start looking, oh, oh, they actually do have schools in Michigan that would be serving Andrew well. Oh, U of M. Ann Arbor's hospital is like still top 10 in the country. Oh, grandpa can babysit after school. The, oh, the I don't have to, oh, I don't have to take the Michigan bar exam. I just have to do a bunch of paperwork and they'll let me in. Oh, my wife got her teaching license in Michigan. Lots of people are interviewing her, you know, and it just sort, sort of, it happened quickly though, I will say. We sat with it um, as a potential idea um, for a while. And we really didn't make up our minds about it until uh, late March 2021. Okay. And then three months later, we were boots on the ground in Michigan. So was this one of those situations where I was going to say, like, did you – because I've heard this story from many people in yeah. Nassau County where people from the city were moving to Nassau and people from Nassau were moving east and people were putting their mark house on, on, on the market and it was they were getting offers within the week. So, yeah, um, we had one open house. On a Sunday, we got six offers over asking. Jeez. And then we picked the best one. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I had an, a, a neighbor four houses down. I'm in Port Washington. You know where I'm at. Yeah. And yeah, same yeah. exact thing happened where they, they overlisted the house and still got a, yeah. you know, still got an, like, it was just, well, it's a we, weird time. We, we decided to, we decided to list at a price point that was significantly higher than what we have bought at 
a decade earlier, but we didn't get greedy. And that got more people in the door. So it's always okay. It's, so like, I yeah, think, it's a subtle I'm, dance. I was also cognizant of like, you know, now I really understand why people do things like list their house at blank 99, because as a, as a potential buyer, you're like, I can't go to that next $100,000 range. Mm -hmm. So you get in searches that way that you probably wouldn't have got into. A fair you, point. Uh, yeah. Real estate is an interesting business, but uh, we had a great, the woman that helped us buy our house in UI Park in 2011 sold our house in 2021. No kidding. Yeah. Great, great real estate agent. So next thing you know, you are now raising a family, living in Michigan and transitioning into practicing in Michigan. Right. Okay. So. We talked a little bit about this offline, but for a time you stayed with your New York firm, even though you were in Michigan, because remote litigation allowed you to do that, basically, right? right? Exactly. There was no, there was no real tangible difference for me working in the attic at my house in Nassau County versus finding the the apartment we rented for the first year in Michigan. Right. Or for that matter, for at the extended stay uh, coffee break room that we lived in while our crap was getting uh, moved behind us from uh, New York to Michigan. So I did that. But I, I also had this sort of nagging idea that it was going to be important for me to develop roots, put down roots here um professionally you mean yeah 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 as much as i would have been happy to to keep doing the special ed law through the firm in new york city um i had this i don't know if it was um wisdom or or anxiety or some some uh felicitous combination of both but um, you know, I decided that I needed to make connections on the ground here in Michigan, and when I went forward with that, so I joined the firm. Um, and at the time, which wasn't that long ago, and it still is the case, uh, Michigan had just legalized recreational marijuana. Okay. And the firm that I joined, the very small practice group within that firm. Had a decent amount of marijuana clients so i got to do a lot of interesting cannabis work and that's tricky work right now with the, oh my the, gosh you know i, I a, interviewed a, a guy not too nightmare oh uh, the the uh the term that kept coming up was and this is a guy based out in colorado is if you are operating a cannabis business your attorney cannot give you comfortable advice about anything because the framework just changes so frequently and you go from state to state and God forbid, and the THC level, which is, they've set the threshold at 0.3, which is completely arbitrary. It's, it's just, it's a minefield for, for, and, for attorneys. And like, 
it might be okay to call your product pink elephant, but you can't have a picture of a pink elephant on it. What? Yeah, so like that's what I'm saying. Like I'm <laughs> I'm just I'm really just buttressing your point. Yeah. The idea of like the character would be potentially appealing to a child, but the words wouldn't. Oh, but oh my like, goodness. That's why they got rid of Joe Camel. But they didn't make Camel change the name of their cigarette. Same sort of thread through. Wow. But like, that's just one of a thousand examples. And then you've got states next to each other that are completely incompatible. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got, of course, the underlying thing, which is it's still on the books as an illegal uh, controlled substance yep. uh, in the feds. So that for a while was making it an all cash business, which then made those businesses prime targets for robberies because yep. people knew that they could only have cash because they no banks would take their money. So it's, yeah. yeah. And, but, but, but so interesting, so freaking interesting, uh, without a doubt. Um, so I did a bit of that. I did um, some real estate law. I did a lot of environmental law, which I had never done. Huh. And learned uh, a great deal about um, the EPA and then the Michigan um, State Environmental Authority. Um, did some cool work with some municipalities here, um, both in getting funding to clean up contaminated sites and in um, getting approval to do some interesting coastline repair work. I mean, <laughs> you know. Yeah, you, you're you don't take uh you don't take a direct route to anything, do you? I, right. Wow. So the place that you're at now. Sure. Um first you've been there how long? I started here um a little over two months ago. The firm is Moss and Colella. It's in Southfield, Michigan, which is sort of a satellite type city to downtown Detroit. Okay. Almost like if you would picture like a, a Jersey City or a Newark to Manhattan. Um, and it's a plaintiff's firm. They they do uh, medical malpractice, um, plaintiff's inj- uh, personal injury, civil rights. Um, and now that I've joined them, special education. And I was brought in um, as senior appellate counsel because they really needed someone who knew appellate law and also was a strong researcher and writer. And um, I, in fact, was looking for an in-house position at the time. But huh. this checked so many of my boxes for other reasons that and this is the first time I ever got a job through a recruiter. Um, Interesting. That when I was preparing for the interview, I said to the recruiter, I said, if the interview goes well, do you have any objection to me raising the idea of um, me starting to practice or building a special education practice there? And she said, you know, because I, I only asked because I hadn't really worked that closely with the recruiter before. And she was like, no, absolutely. If you think it's going well, bring it up. And it was going well. I brought it up. And and there's a nice press release they did when I joined. And 
you know, even in the press release, they make a point of making it, you know, known to the world. Not only is that one of the things that I'm going to be doing, but that they, uh, as we would say in Queens, got my friggin' back. <laughs> you know, what's what's great about that is, you know, aside from the fact that it's a personal, you know, field for you, my assumption is that a firm would see that special education work is not only important but like let's let's be serious here the optics of it are fantastic it just sure. it looks great but you never know you never know how a firm is going to take something like that. oh absolutely and, and they, right. it seems like they they processed the information exactly the way you would hope exactly. you know exactly and one of the reasons so I'll, I'll give credit to the prior michigan firm too they they supported me um, in, in, in terms of infrastructure, I did, um, help some parents, but, um, they were a defense side firm. So they very much operated on a, we build a client for the work we did for them that month. And then the client pays the bill promptly. And, um, that is not a compatible fee model for special education. So coming to a firm that had you know, a plaintiff's model of the understanding that, you know, some cases you don't get any fees and even the cases that you do really well in you, from the day you sign up the client until you see a dollar in fees might be anywhere from six to 24 months. Mm -hmm. You know, the, that appetite for risk, that financial model is built into the work they do and how they do it. So in that way, it was um, a, a good match as well. That's perfect. Yeah. Um, it's, it's nice to hear that, you know, that it's it's not always just a business, you know? Sure. I mean, right. Yeah. Or at least that businesses can see the bigger picture. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Um, all right, Matt, I want to wrap up here with sure. two questions that I always ask on podcasts. All righty. Okay, first and foremost, TV, movies, books, etc. If you had to recommend one piece of media for aspiring lawyers, hmm. what comes to mind? And there's, you know, there's a million movies, courtroom dramas, there, you know, we've I've gotten a million different answers on this, but does anything come to mind to you right out of the gate? And you're allowed to say legally blonde if you want to. No, no. I, what I would <laughs> say is for 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 people that are interested in criminal defense, the early the early years of the original plain vanilla law and order with Michael Moriarty. Oh yeah. Some of the best legal television in history. Michael Moriarty was amazing, and yep. it's. You know, in the whole scheme of things, he was only on that show for a couple of years. Sure. But there were the first couple of years, right? Yeah. And yeah. I just loved his demeanor. He was so methodical. You know, mm -hmm. it's Sam Waterston's great also, but well, he would yes. get heated. You know, um, yeah, Michael and, and Moriarty course, was way more laid back. And then you also you had that overlap with the Chris Knopf or Knopf yep. years when he, he was the quintessential i think uh cop role on that show 
there's been other greats, but he really nailed it. He's the prototype. Yeah, well, the 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 cop who goes about his business, but is also a bit of a hothead at times, and you know exactly. takes takes particularly gruesome crimes personally. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it, you know, and you work with enough detectives, which I did for years. Right, you were at the Bronx DA for years, right? Yeah. Um, you know, like it's most of these guys get pretty. Um, the desensitized might be the wrong word, but they just get used to it. Right. But they can still get their Irish up if a certain <laughs> if a certain set of facts comes across. That's right. But you're you're right though. Chris Noth was all over that. Um, What's the all right, one question? other one other question I want to throw your way, and I I love the early Law and Order answer by the way. You know, even like Paul Sorvino was on that show for a year or two. Oh, he was. Yeah, he was. There's been so many great people. Yeah. Um, one piece of professional advice that you would relay to someone starting out as a young attorney. Don't be afraid to take a job in an area that you hadn't necessarily planned on practicing because A, you might turn, might wind up liking it. B, as I think my career has demonstrated, if you don't like it, you don't have to stay there. No, your your career is a case in point for that. Like if you putting aside that you that you're living in Michigan now, putting that aside, <laughs> if I would have told 2006 Matt McCann, this is going to be your level of experience and the different fields you've worked in come 2023, you know, what would you have said? I probably well, first of all, you know, I would have Part of it would have had to have been uh, extra insightful because you would have had to know about my special needs child that had fair enough. But uh, yeah, yeah, I think in 2006, I probably would have thought, I'll tell you, actually, I know what I would have thought because the firm I started at on Wall Street was a mid sized firm and it was a feeder firm to big firms up and up and until the great recession of 2008 so in 2006 i would have told you i'm gonna i'm gonna get my chops in three four years there and then i'm gonna go to insert big firm in midtown and i'll probably be partner there (laughs) yeah you just never know yeah you never know now i did answer your last question but um I do have one thing that I want to say before we end. Absolutely. So um, in the summer of 2018, um, a few months after my father had passed, the law firm that I was working at uh, had not declared bankruptcy, but they had um, stopped being able to make payroll. And on July 4th of that particular year, I was pounding the pavement trying to get a paying job. Um, And you brought me into your office and uh, gave me lunch. And 
you gave me uh, an incredible sense of camaraderie and friendship and support when I was at a, a very low point. And uh, I have many things to be thankful for and the 20 odd years that we've known each other, but that particular day, um, I don't think I'll ever forget. So I wanted to thank you for that. You know, um, absolutely. And I, I don't think I knew until now that that was such a big deal for you because I remember just giving you, you know, a bit of a pep talk that day. Cause it was, I remember it. Yeah. Cause I, I just remember thinking at the time, like your resume is like, it's going to find itself into the right hands and it speaks for itself. But we work in a profession with very few mirrors you know, Correct. and it's it's sometimes it's hard to see from yourself. So I guess it was good to hear it from somebody else. Yeah, um, it, was, just, it was what I, it was what I needed to hear when I needed to hear it. You know, because I had that so much sadness at that time from my dad having passed, and then you know the the uh, the financial difficulties that came with working for free for a couple of months. Yeah, would have been exactly the type of situation my dad would have helped me with. So it was like an extra kick in the nuts. And, uh, you know, not not that long after we had that conversation, maybe four weeks, I had landed the, the job at the firm on Long Island. And I see I look back at that as like uh, a pivot point hmm. where. I knew that it was just a matter of continuing to put in the legwork. I stopped doubting myself um, and just pushed ahead. So, no, thank and you good, absolutely, no, you're very welcome. And good for you for continuing that because you're now multiple jobs removed from, yeah. from the place absolutely. on Long Island where you landed. You're in a new state, which somehow is in the same time zone as, as New York City, which doesn't make any sense. <laughs> It, it um, really doesn't. No. We're about 12, 13 hours away by car. But, you know. Yeah. And look, you know, you're not doing battle rap at the Sedgwick houses, but you are doing it around the corner right. from eight mile. There you go. So, so it all comes back, man. Yeah, man. So this has been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, your, your time and your insight. Very much appreciated, Matt. Absolutely, brother. All right. Talk soon. Absolutely. And...